Welcome to the Surviving Opioids Beyond an Epidemic podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Simone. On this show, we talk opioids, addiction, and recovery. It's for anyone who wants to know that although we've lost a lot of good people this past decade, we also do recover. It's a show for people who feel trapped, like they're never going to get off the opioid merry-go-round, and it's for people who have stopped but feel like they'll never start feeling better again. Well, I'm here to tell you that it can get better, and it will. You're going to get some incredible perspectives from folks who have been impacted by the crisis, and you'll get some topic episodes where I try to pack a ton of value into answering your questions. If you like what you hear and you want more, subscribe to the show, give it a rating, leave a review. It's all good stuff, and it's what keeps this train rolling. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. Hello, lovely podcast people. Welcome back to another episode of Surviving Opioids, where we talk anything and everything that might involve opioid addiction. I'm Jeff Simone. I'm a doctor of pharmacy, dietary supplement advisor, recovery coach. I'm a person in long-term recovery from opioid addiction. So everything I talk about is just how this whole thing looks to me based on what I've seen, learned, and experienced. I try to keep any clinical guidance or recommendations as objective and scientifically based as possible, you know, but of course I have opinions and perspectives that have developed over the years. Uh, so there's a certain flavor of personal preference that does leak out from time to time. But I always try my best to let you know when my own uh, personal biases are rearing their ugly heads. And I'll point that out, you know, because it does happen. Of course, I have, I have opinions just like you, you know, which is completely fine. Biases are fine, you know, as long as we can recognize them and, and point out where they might be uh, coloring a particular viewpoint. We can we can work with that, you know. the The trouble is like when we're blind to our own biases, you know, and they're and they're driving our entire lives. Yet we have no idea that they're even happening. You know, that's where the trouble comes in. So today I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about Vivitrol. All right, it's an intramuscular injectable form of naltrexone, uh, which is a type of medication-assisted treatment. When we talk about like medication-assisted treatments, we're usually talking about one of three options. We're usually talking about uh, methadone, buprenorphine, or naltrexone. Taking medication to transition away from an opioid addiction or an opioid dependency, like you know, into a life of recovery. It has a lot of good data to to support it, you know, and and, and for better or for worse, it, um, it has been the direction that mainstream treatment has been moving, you know, particularly over the last uh, you know ten years or so. And it makes sense that that we are, you know, our annual death toll from opioid overdoses alone in the U.S. Uh, it's just about at at a hundred thousand per year, okay, which is an unprecedented number. It's a ridiculous number, is what it is. Uh, the problem is getting worse, not better. Uh, the abstinence-only model of recovery that has kind of ruled the show for the past 80 years has has largely been a failure. Um, I hate to say it, you know, and that's that is if we're looking at it from the macro perspective of the policymakers, you know, like I try to look at the problem not from how it looks, you know, from my back porch, but how does it look to the guys in Washington who are calling the shots? You know, the full abstinence model of treatment, you know, seems to be you know, in the 5% efficacy range, maybe a bit less, okay, like depending upon exactly how we're defining success. Um, so it's no big mystery why public treatment policy and, 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 and funding are moving in that direction, you know. 
Now, still, you know, given that um, MAT is is one of the most contentious areas of addiction treatment, and there's a lot of reasons for it, you know, and and, and maybe I'll do an entire show just on that. Um, I will actually, you know, because because there's just so much there, and and um, uh, each of my interviews so far has has touched on it at least to a to a degree, uh, but that won't be the the focus today. So there are three major medications used for opioid addiction treatment. Um, there's more than three, but, but, but there are three that are the most popular, and there's a specific time and place that each one would be indicated. Methadone and buprenorphine are very similar to each other. They're, they're longer-acting opioid agonists you know, that are substituting as, as these less harmful alternatives to the, to, to the immediately-acting opioid of choice. Whatever that was for you, you know, heroin, fentanyl, you know, Demerol, Dilaud, Doxycodone, Hydrocodone, Vicodin, Percocet, whatever. Um, you know, but of course, like with these two medications, although you're attempting to lessen the harm, there is still physical dependency because those natural endorphin receptors are constantly occupied with opioids. You know, so if the product is discontinued abruptly, the user will be thrust into an acute withdrawal state, you know. But that's not the case with Vivitrol. Uh, Vivitrol, which is the brand name for the once-monthly intramuscular injection of naltrexone, uh, it's an opiate antagonist, you know, not an, an agonist like the other two that I just mentioned. So it's, so it's doing the exact opposite. Instead of binding to the receptor and turning it on, it binds to the receptor and it blocks it. Uh, so those are the three most popular MAT medications, um, but with all of them, you know, if if the medication that you start with doesn't work for you, you know, you you continue to have cravings or you don't feel well, you can try something else. And if you find something that works well for you, in theory, you can stay on that as long as you need to. You know, the old idea with with the replacement strategies in particular was that we're just using it to facilitate detox. You know, we we transition someone onto it and then quickly taper off. And we still do use it like that, but as time has gone on, a lot of people do stay on these medications indefinitely. Uh, and again, there are arguments for and against that, but you know that's like, that'll be a topic for another time. The, the The main point is that no medication for opioid use disorder is a is a cure all. Medication might help you, you know, stay absent from your opioid of choice. Okay, like if you're on methadone, you know, you're much like less likely to crave heroin, for example. So, you know, so maybe you can start to focus on the recovery work, which will be a good thing. Um, but that's if recovery is even something that you want to pursue. You know, like one of the other old ideas out there is that everybody dependent on opioids desires to be off. And, and that's just not true. Some people don't want to be off completely. You know, maybe they've done the abstinence thing and they don't want to do it anymore and and that by the way is nobody's decision but the person themselves you know just like if you if you see somebody smoking a cigarette you're not going to be running up to them slapping it out of their hand and lecturing how bad it is for them well you're not slapping the methadone out of someone's hand either if somebody wants to stay on they get supported and if somebody wants to get off they get supported okay like no difference there um, and this stuff can can save lives, it, you know, um, if it means preventing relapse and overdose, you know, like it might not completely eliminate discomfort and cravings, at least not in the beginning, but it can definitely help. So we who are part of the abstinence-based recovery community do need to be 
more accepting of this. Um, you know, it's really a bad look when we get all self-righteous and start like evangelizing our, our new way of abstinence and, and, and shaming people who are on replacement therapies. So that was a pretty long tangent. But yeah, as, as long as this stuff continues to be a hot topic, I will continue to, to talk about it. Uh, but you know, back to, back to naltrexone specifically. Naltrexone, again, is not an opioid-like methadone or suboxone. You know? It's an opioid blocker. So like, the single most important thing about naltrexone is that like, before you start, you need to be fully detoxed. Uh, like, not only does naltrexone compete with the opioid agonist for the receptor sites, but it binds more tightly which means if there's already an immediate acting opioid occupying that site, okay, like heroin or oxycodone, for example, it'll kick that drug off, which will thrust the user instantly into withdrawals. Um, it's why Narcan works the way that it does. You know, like Narcan is the trade name for naloxone, okay, which is a quick-acting opioid agonist, you know, whereas naltrexone is, is long-acting. So Narcan works the way that it does because that drug kicks off the opioids from the receptors and it immediately reverses the overdose if the person is found before they completely stopped breathing. It's also why patients also tend to be very irritable and sometimes aggressive to the first responders right after getting Narcan, you know, because they've just been thrust immediately into withdrawal. Um, but that drug is short-acting uh, so, so the effects wore off quickly. Whereas with naltrexone, if you if you dose it too soon while the opiates are still on board, uh, those blocker effects could could last a while. So again, like you're going to need to be fully detoxed before Vivitrol can be administered, and that will depend upon what you're what you're coming off of. Uh, you know, so if you're transitioning from like buprenorphine onto naltrexone, you'll want to wait a few weeks. Um, but if you're you know coming off one of the shorter acting opioids. Uh, you know, seven days is is usually okay. Seven to ten days, depending upon how much you are taking. Now, trexone has no noticeable effect on the mood. Okay, like, or at least it's not supposed to. You know, some people say it does. Um, I was on Vivitrol myself for the first five months of my abstinence. Um, so, uh, you know, five or six months. So I got five or six monthly injections. Um, it's typically indicated for longer than that. You know, it's just you know that's just that's just what I happen to have done. Um, and my mood was severely depressed that whole time, you know, but I was also coming off of like five other things and I stopped them all cold turkey at once. So like, who knows what was causing what, you know, um, I accepted the fact that I wasn't going to feel well for a long time. You know, this, uh, like the, the addiction psychiatrist that, that was administering those, those shots to me, a really great guy, you know, still, still a friend of mine. He said something to me that I repeat to people all the time now. And he said, don't analyze your life during these first three months. It's not, it's not fair. And he was right. You know, it, it wouldn't have been fair to analyze my whole life through that prism of, of, of extreme depression and darkness. Uh, the only possible conclusions that I could have come to is that everything is permanently effed and the future looks bleak and hopeless. Uh, so I actually listened to him. Uh, see, that was a like a theme to my early recovery, you know, just actually taking other people's direction, which is a small miracle in itself because I really went through my entire adult life never taking direction from anybody, really, you know. So like, what exactly changed in that moment? I I can't say for sure, but I had a window open, you know. Like when I talk to people at detoxes and rehab, people who are pursuing recovery. 
I talk about these little windows that we get, these these windows of willingness that that mysteriously open sometimes and uh, the problem is that they also mysteriously seem to close just as easily and, and uh, there's no way to know for sure when either of those things is going to happen. Uh, but I had that and, and I took advantage of it somehow. Uh, okay, so that was a little bit of an aside there. What was I just saying before that? Oh, about like naltrexone and mood. Okay, so like naltrexone will decrease cravings for opioids, but it shouldn't have a noticeable effect on your mood. And it does help prevent relapse while it's being used. You know, clearly uh, um, it blocks all of the opioid receptors in the brain so that you can't get high off of opioids. You know, like in other words, if you take heroin or other painkillers, naltrexone is going to stop them from really having any effect at all, which is different than how it works with alcohol addictions, by the way. Uh, you know, you might know that out that naltrexone is also prescribed to reduce alcohol cravings. Uh, it's even the whole basis of a protocol known as the Sinclair method, which is a medication-centered approach that uses classical conditioning principles to get rid of someone's alcohol dependency. Uh, but with alcohol, you know, it it's it's simply blocking the euphoric high that comes right after we start drinking. You know, which which, as you might imagine, is endorphin-mediated, okay, which is why naltrexone works in this situation. But it's not blocking the intoxicating effects from alcohol. All right, so if you take naltrexone and then you drink your usual amount of alcohol, you're still going to get just as drunk as you otherwise would have. You're just not going to enjoy it as much, you know. But that's not the case with the opiates. You know, since it's an opiate antagonist, it is stopping you from getting the intoxicating effects from the opioids as well. I said I was on this for five or six months when I stopped in, in 2016, but but a year before that, I had also detoxed long enough to get started on a course, um, and I and I, I ended up relapsing right around day 26 or 27 of my first Vivitrol shot, uh, and it really does block those receptors for just about the entire 30 days, you know, so whatever I was trying to use for those three or four days had had no effect at all. It was It was a total waste of good drugs, you know, so I can speak about that part, uh, from some personal experience too. Um, there's also a tablet form of naltrexone, you know, which is the form that it's given for alcohol addictions and, and occasionally with opioids. Uh, but obviously that's fully dependent on the person actually adhering to treatment and, and voluntarily taking that pill every day. You know, so if given the option, the injectable Vivitrol version is a much better option. All right, so uh, to summarize, you know, some of the of the pros and cons, the the pros with naltrexone, you know, that you're protected against relapse, okay, that's the biggest one. Most people will stop obsessing, uh, you know, about finding drugs, getting drugs, buying drugs, uh, so, it, so it buys you some time to extinguish some of that obsessive learning. It is safe, okay, like there's no risk of overdose. Uh, when you stop using it, you won't experience any kind of withdrawal symptoms. Um, it's not a controlled substance, you know, so the doctor, do, you know, they doesn't need any kind of special waiver to prescribe it, which is helpful. You, you know, you just dose it once a month. You don't have to show up to a clinic every morning. In terms of stigma, and I'm mentioning this as a pro because it certainly is the reality right now that there's a lot less controversy with Vivitrol than the replacement opiates, you know. You can't get high from naltrexone. It's it's the exact opposite of getting high. You know, if anything, it might even depress your mood for a little bit. So, um, so that is you know, something that needs to be considered. Cons, um, you know, I already mentioned the the main one. You know that like, you need to be fully detoxed for seven to ten days or so before we can start, and and that's non negotiable, by the way. 
Okay, so don't like lie to the prescriber, tell him you've you know been off 10 days when you've only been off four days. Um, trust me, you will regret that. Another consideration which I haven't mentioned is the fact that uh, that since it's an opiate blocker and it binds more tightly than like the immediate acting products, um, the usual doses of like other opioid painkillers wouldn't work if somebody needed them for something, whatever whatever that something might might be. You have a little procedure and you need to be administered a quick acting opiate in the office for pain relief or something. Well, like unless it's an anesthetic of some sort, it's not going to work. It's going to be blocked. Okay. So, you know, keep that in mind before you schedule any kinds of optional procedures that you could avoid uh, or, or like afford delaying. Other possible side effects, you know, some people say that it affects their sleep for a little bit. Uh, which again, you know, it's hard to say because protracted opioid withdrawal affects sleep too. So, the, who knows if it's you know if it really has much to do with the the naltrexone itself. Some people say that they feel a bit anhedonic during treatment. Okay, so that like lack of pleasure from other usually pleasurable things, working out, playing with your kids, stuff like that. Uh, but again, you know, hard to know how much of that is actually attributable to the naltrexone. Um, and probably the biggest con, which I really haven't mentioned yet, is that if if you've been successfully treated with Vivitrol for a few months, you can consider that your opiate receptors are getting a good scrubbing from this blocker. Yeah. Okay, which is um, to say that like whatever tolerance you had built up has been reversed and then some. Okay, so like when you stop using it, those re- those like receptors are as primed and sensitive as ever to the effects from opioids. So if you did happen to relapse and go back to anything even close to resembling your old dosing patterns, the result could be instantly fatal, okay? So any good practitioner has to make this extremely clear to the patient right away that that should be one of the first things mentioned. Um, all right, you know, that's, I guess that's about all I wanted to mention with Vivitrol, uh, the brand name for long-acting naltrexone injection. Um, overall, I would say that it's, underused underrated you know it's a good drug it's expensive uh, but it's covered by a lot of plants that actually isn't quite as big an obstacle to treatment as it as it used to be the biggest obstacle by far is just convincing somebody to get it and then show up for their monthly follow-up shots the problem is that the patient needs to be motivated you know just to to agree to treatment in the first place like if you aren't really sure that that you want to be opiate free you're not going to commit to this 30-day block it's uh Uh, It's a big commitment. And in terms of short-term comfort, it's just a lot more comfortable to opt for like a buprenorphine product for a little while than jumping right into a blocker. So it's understandable why it's not nearly as popular as as some of those like replacement uh, treatment options. Um, Okay, you know, I hope this covered some of the basics, cleared up some of the misconceptions, misinformation that's floating around about this drug. I'm over at Reaction Recovery on Instagram if you want uh, some some daily topics like this. Uh, The website is www.reactionrecovery.com, and I'll continue to build up the podcast library here. All right, so if you know of somebody who might like stuff like this, send them the link, you know, get the word out. Um, All right, all right, everybody, until next time.